they need a home, they can get a home loan. If they need education, they can get education. If they were hurt in service, we pay compensation. If you weren't hurt in service, but you fell on hard times, we give you pension. There's just an array of benefits out there for veterans, and we really want to just make sure that all the veterans know what's out there. Choose VA today. For more information, visit va.gov or call 1-855-948-2311. Oh, let's get it. Monday, July 12th, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Wherever and however you're listening to Born the Battle, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, or one of any of the other plethora of other podcast players out there, hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. I am I am not in the studio this week. I am home back in Washington State where there's no cell phone service. Yes, places like that in America do exist. I'm also probably enjoying the river that runs right next to my grandfather's property. And at this moment, I'm probably spending time with family and friends. So this is not a normal episode. There's no going to be no responses to reviews, no news releases this week. However, you do get an interview. It's a Born the Battle Rewind. Going to do you a little favor and go all the way back to the very first episode of Born the Battle. Back then, we had a different host, even a different name. It was called This Week at VA, which was god-awful. Thanks, Tim, for for changing that. Uh, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson was the first uh, host. And his first interview, his very first interview, was with Marine veteran and retired American professional soccer player, Haley Carter. Now, at the time of the interview, Haley was also an assistant coach for the Afghan national soccer team. Enjoy. So, Haley, before we learn about you as a soccer player, you as a veteran, uh, every veteran story starts uh, with the same thought in, I'm going to join the military. Bring us to that decision and why you chose the Marine Corps. Yeah, so I um, I watched this show on the Discovery Channel when I think I was in, like, seventh grade, um, and it featured basically each of the service academies. And um, I remember watching it with my mom, telling my mom, I really want to do that. I want to go to school there. Um, and I really liked the Naval Academy. And then as I got older and, you know, I was playing college or playing high school soccer rather and club soccer, and I knew I wanted to play in college, so – um, I was being recruited by several different universities, but I had always had it kind of set in my mind that I wanted to go to the Navy or one of these service academies, but specifically Navy. And so I reached out to the coaching staff there and, um, I went to summer soccer camp cause it's the easiest way to, to get an opportunity to see a campus and meet with the staff and see sort of the environment. Um, and I just loved it. And so, um, despite being recruited by a couple different schools, I wound up choosing, um, to go to Navy. So I played division one college soccer while I was there. Um, and, uh, it was a long four years, you know, the, the military side of it actually wasn't that bad, but the school, you know, I don't think people realize, you know, when you're a division one college athlete and you're taking 20 hours a semester 
in season, um, it's no joke. So the school yeah. itself, the academic part was really rigorous, um, and balancing that with military responsibilities. And then on top of playing division one college soccer was pretty challenging. Um, it was weird though. I found that out of season, I always had much better, much worse grades than I did. And in season when I was totally overwhelmed, um, my grades were much better. It was kind of weird, but, um, and then of course, you know, throughout my four years, there um you you were kind of exposed to a lot of different opportunities whether you want to go surface warfare or you want to be a pilot or you want to go marine corps um and the various training opportunities during the summer you get to experience that a little bit and then you just meet officers from each of those communities throughout your time at the academy and i got between my junior and senior year and i made the decision to participate in this program called um leatherneck and basically it's a three-week, month-long um, summer training exercise that happens at Quantico, and it kind of simulates the basic course, um, which is where all Marine Corps officers kind of go after they get their commission. And it sort of levels the playing field. It's a six-month school, and you learn about basic um, infantry tactics and being a Marine Corps um, sort of platoon commander and that sort of thing. Um, so I did that during summer training, and I loved it, and I I decided that was what I wanted to do for service selection. So um, my senior year, I, I wound up um, being selected to get my commission in the Marine Corps, and that's how it happened. That's how that happens. Yeah. The That program proper, appropriately titled Leatherneck. I like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do inside the military? I did I did some research on you, and I tried to, like, browse around. had a hard time finding uh, your primary MOS. I was a logistics officer. I was no 402. Okay. Yeah. And you deployed, correct? I did. I did. I, w- I was in Iraq twice. And then, well, that was when I was, like, operational, I guess, and, like, the fleet. Um, I was stationed out of Camp Lejeune, or Lejeune, as some of you guys like to refer to it. <laughs> um, I will never call it that. And I was with Combat Logistics Battalion 8 in 2007, and we did the deployment to Fallujah. And then I was with... Um, Second Marine Expeditionary Force forward for basically all of 2009, um, and we were based out of Al-Assad. So a year of my 20s that I will never get back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then after that, I I went from Camp Lejeune. I spent close to four years there um, just because of deployments and different things going on, and my MOS school is actually at Camp Johnson. And then I moved to Hawaii, and I was actually stationed at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. And I worked, I worked for the Joint Prisoner of War Missing in Action Accounting Command, JPAC, which has now since been renamed. It's the um, Defense Prisoner of War Missing in Action Accounting Agency. They, like, merged it with the civilian um, program in D.C. But same thing, different acronym. You know, you know how it goes. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Everything, acronyms all over the place. What was one of your favorite things about the military, or maybe what do you miss the most about it? Um, I have to say I miss my Marines. I don't necessarily miss the Marine Corps, but I certainly miss my Marines. You know, I miss being around people that are are young and motivated and really care about their job and really want to be there. You know, that's something I think that when you transition into the civilian world um, is a little bit of a shocker, you know. In the Marine Corps, people can't just quit, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, and so, and that's just not the kind of personality that the Marine Corps attracts. So, um, you know, I miss being around, especially junior Marines, you know, kids that, 
um, it's given the opportunity and the platform to do amazing things. We'll do amazing things. And they always think outside the box and they always come up with creative solutions and kind of adapt and overcome. And that sort of innovation and outside the box thinking um, and, and delegation and like empowerment, you don't see that a lot, I think, in the civilian world. I think that that's something that the civilian world lacks. So, um, yeah, I definitely, I miss my Marines for sure. You know, you said in the, in the military, you just can't, you just can't quit. That always reminds me of a time when I was uh, posted in Algeria. We all agreed or we all decided to go on a, uh, an early morning run before breakfast um, at like 530 in the morning, which is, you know, is normal in the, in the military. Yeah. Yeah. We all, we all got there, right? There's like four or five of us, a small detachment. We all got there. We all expressed how we didn't want to go. And how we yeah. just would rather go back to bed, all of us, including our detachment commander. And then after we got done griping about it, we were like, all right, well, let's go. <laughs> and and yeah. it's funny that even with the oper- – we all could have said, let's not do this, and that would have been fine. But, like, you just don't do that. You just – if you agree do to do something, you do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What prompted your separation from the military? I actually have a son. He's um, he's four. He'll be five in January. And when on my second command um, in Hawaii, I, he was born, and you know I, I deployed with a lot of um, a lot of Marines that have families and have kids, and I just thought it was really really hard on them. Um, and it was kind of a personal decision for me, and you know I, I, the people that I think can deploy and can stay in the military with families, more power to them because it is incredibly difficult to spend time away from them. And um, I think for me it was just really important. I wanted to be around sort of for his formative years and. Um, and I didn't want to have to risk going on deployment and losing that much time. And I, you know, I didn't really want to re- have to rely on other people and a support structure to help raise him. And, you know, I, I just wanted to be there. You know, like I said, it's a, it was a personal decision for me, and that that really drove a lot of it. Yeah. How was your transition now? That I, that's a difficult time for most service members. How did you adapt? I have to say, I I was pretty fortunate. Um, so I got my MBA while I was still in the Marine Corps, and. Um, so getting out with a degree from the Naval Academy and then an MBA, and it made things a little bit easier. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to um, transition right into employment right away. Um, I think probably one of my biggest regrets is not taking, not really maximizing my terminal leave. Um, I think I took maybe five days off, and then hmm. I had 60 days built up, and I took maybe five days of that off, and then I rolled right into my civilian job. So I was, you know, living large with a dual income for two months, but um, I didn't really take the opportunity, I think, to kind of relax and let my brain just kind of simmer and chill for a month. Um, but I was I was really fortunate. You know, I, I transitioned. I came from Hawaii back to Texas. Um, it was actually kind of a, a weird deal. I had applied for a position, a GS position in Hawaii, and I'd been accepted for it and they were in the middle of processing it and then the hiring freeze there's a million hiring freezes but this was in like October of 2012 I think right when they were he and hawing about the budget so that came down so I was like well you know I'm not I can't afford to wait around and find a job so um, I just set to it on LinkedIn and various different um, recruiters and um, placement companies that specialize with like hiring veterans and getting veterans employed and then um and yeah, one thing led to another. I came back to Texas. I'm originally from Houston, and I actually moved back to Austin. And my husband's family is from Austin, so um, I settled pretty nicely into a uh, support structure and um, and employment and um, 
it rolled pretty well. I mean, it was stressful. I think moving, it's really, a, it's it may as well be an overseas movement coming back. Um, but I was able to find, you know, a place to live and a school to get my son in and stuff like that. And I was kind of accustomed to having to do that from a distance, just from having been in the military for so long. But I would say my transition went relatively smooth, and I and I was incredibly fortunate for sure. So then, how do you go from that to getting into the NWSL? So I actually played um, in between deployments. I played all armed forces soccer. I was really fortunate to have commanders that were supportive of all Marine sports and all armed forces sports, you know, um, and they were literally like right after I'd get back from a deployment within a month of getting back, I would be off playing. So, um, yeah, I was just really fortunate with that. But so I continued playing, played college soccer and then played all armed forces soccer. And I even played semi-pro in Hawaii while I was there. And there's actually really competitive soccer in Hawaii. It's crazy because it's an island and it's isolated. You wouldn't realize it. But um, when I moved back to Austin, I was in Austin for maybe seven or eight months, and then they announced the um, expansion of NWSL into Houston. And um, I remember going to a game in October, a Dynamo game, and somebody saying, hey, did you hear they're talking about expanding the Women's League to Houston? And, of course, I've been around and watched all of the iterations of professional women's soccer in the U.S., from WUSA to um, WPS and now to NWSL. So I I was like, yeah, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> Um, and then, like, a week later, they announced it, and so I kind of saw it grow, and they brought in Tony DeChico, and then Randy Waltram came in, and they hired him as the head coach, and um, and then they announced open tryouts, and so I thought, well, you know, I'll go to open tryouts, and I had been talking with Randy um, on email and Twitter, and, and he was like, yeah, you should definitely come, and, um, you know, we look forward to having you or whatever, so I came, and um I tried out the first day, and then I got invited back to the next day, and then I got invited into camp, and then, and then one thing led to another, and three years later, um, I'm still playing with a dash. Um, I will tell you, though, my I had a job in Austin, a great job. I had a lot of flexibility. I was able to work remote. It was a global position, so I supported people all over the world. So it didn't really matter where I was working out of because I was on video teleconferences and stuff like that, and it, it didn't matter where I was at. So I actually would I lived with my parents for a little bit the first season, and I would drive home to see my husband and son um, on the weekends, and it was crazy. I'm being a thirty-something-year-old and pretty well established, and having to live with your parents is cool, but it gets old really fast. So, um, and so my husband said, if you want to play again, we're moving to Houston. So I said, okay. We owned a house in Hawaii, and we sold the house in Hawaii, and we bought the house in Houston, and. Um, we moved to Houston, and I continued my job in Austin for a while, and then I actually switched to a job here in in Houston and, and continue to play, but it's made it a lot easier on my family for me to be here and playing in Houston. But For one of those house purchases, you, you used a VO, VA loan, is that correct? Both. I used a VA loan for both, and so what I did was I used my I used my VA loan certificate or whatever, my endorsement or whatever, um, to buy the house in Hawaii, and then when I moved, obviously my my VA's certification was still stuck in that home. So when I sold that house, then I was able to transfer it to the house that I um, that I purchased in Houston as a primary residence. So yeah, it was a VA for everything. Yeah, that's wonderful. Did you find that process easy to understand? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was actually the third home I bought. Um, using that. So when I was a second lieutenant, a little baby second lieutenant in Camp Lejeune, 
um, I had used it. And then I used it again in Hawaii and then again here. Um, so I was kind of used to the process. And then I think the biggest piece of advice I'd give to someone that's looking to use that and then purchase a home is to go through a mortgage company that understands that process. You know, I went through Veterans United, I went through USAA for my first two purchases and then Veterans United for my most recent purchase. And both of those companies are fantastic. So I've got nothing but great things to say about both. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, you currently also help coach the Afghanistan women's soccer team. Um, if yeah. I read right, you are the goalkeeper coach. How did that opportunity come about? So my personal sponsor for cleats and apparel and stuff is a company called Hummel. Um, and Hummel International uh, actually sponsors, is the kit sponsor, so the uniforms. That's soccer logo for uniforms. Um, is the kit sponsor for the Afghanistan Football Federation. And Hummel Sports USA, who's a subsidiary of Hummel International, told me, Haley, we've got to connect you with this girl. Her name's Kalita Popal. She's the program director for the Afghanistan Women's National Team. We're getting ready to launch this new kit for them. And you, you know, spent time in the Middle East. And we really think you guys would get along well. You guys have got to, we've got to put you in touch with each other. I reached out to Kalita, and one thing led to another. And we became best friends for life. And, um, I asked her if she needed any support for the Afghanistan Women's National Team because I knew she was trying to sort of revamp the program. And um, and so I said, you know, if you need anything, any sort of help, let me know. Um, and I'd love to reach out, you know, but anything I can do, let me know. And so she wrote back to me and she's like, well, how serious are you about that offer? And um, I said, I'm totally serious. I said, you need a goalkeeper coach, assistant coach, what do you need? And she said, yeah, we need a goalkeeper coach and assistant coach. And, um, and then so it was – her and I, and then we brought um, Kelly Lindsay on as well as the head coach, um, who also played for Randy Waldrum. Actually, she graduated from Notre Dame. And the program just sort of grew from there. And I went from being the assistant coach to being like the lead fundraiser and finance guy and the kit guy and the logistics guy and the travel guy. And um, so it's been it's been a fun and rewarding experience, but it has been exhausting. Um, planning national team camps and especially with the team that that team, you know, many of those players live in Europe. Um, some of them live in Canada. A few of them actually live in Afghanistan and trying to coordinate travel and um, visas and passports and all that stuff can get relatively complicated. But, um, and the international game is a completely different beast from like the pro club game. You know, there's a lot of um, just politics and sensitivities that you have to be aware of and, um, you know, and, and cultural things. So it's, it's been it's been really challenging but really fun at the same time. Yeah. You know, um your understanding of physical fitness is probably the easier answer to this question, but beyond that, how do you feel like your time in the military uh what have you gotten from that that you've been able to apply into your life in soccer? Oh, I think just, you know, um tenacity and endurance and mental toughness for sure. You know, we we laugh because we have a um, a sports performance kind of strength and conditioning and fitness coach. His name's John DeWitt. Um, he works for the Dash. And last year was his first season sort of coming in and training the Dash. And I remember the first training session that he came to that he ran uh, fitness for us. And I remember it being the first time I was like, you know, this really sucks. But uh, I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other <laughs> and moving. And it's funny because um, – you know, my teammates occasionally will stress out about him coming and days that he's going to be there and what are we going to do. And 
Um, and I've always just sort of joked with them that I've learned that there's literally nothing that he can do to me in 45 minutes that's going to come even remotely close to being the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And so, you know, that gives you a little bit of perspective, I think, and the sort of stuff that you don't realize it at the time. I think when you're in the military, but when you get out and you look back on it, and you're like, man, I really accomplished some incredible things that looking back on it, I, I don't think I could have you know, if you had just laid it out flat, I probably would have been like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. But I did. And so now it's just, it's like we talked about, you know, you don't quit. You know, you make a commitment to something and that's what you do. And it doesn't matter how hard it gets or how difficult it gets. You know, you keep on trudging through it. So, um, yeah, definitely mental toughness, I think, for sure. The NWSL, it's the National Women's Soccer League, for anybody who's not familiar with that acronym. Um, the season runs through Memorial Day, through Independence Day, through September 11th, and as as yeah, I'm not I'm not aware of any other veterans that are currently playing in the NWSL. Um, yeah, as, so you know, as you know, one of the few veterans that have got an opportunity to play inside the NWSL and being that person for your club, um, tell me about what it's like. When you get to play on those on those holidays or on those days of remembrance or you know during those weekends military appreciation night, knowing that you're not only representing um, the the NWSL your club but also people are looking towards you as being the representative of the military space since there is so few uh, examples in the league. What's that experience like? I mean, you know, it's rewarding anytime you get to to dress out and be a part of, um, you know, a, a club such as the Houston Dash. You know, I, they, that's an organization that has gone above and beyond as far as um, supporting veterans and first responders even in this community in Houston. And so, um, you know, anytime you get to dress out for something like that, it's rewarding. I think, you know, along the holidays and, you know, we had military appreciation night on 9-11 and, um, it was, that was a really good turnout. You know, I, I have kind of shifted in my mindset towards, you know, I, it's more about serving others, I think, and giving back to the community that took care of me for so long. And, um, I, you know, I think any opportunity that I have to say thank you to the people that continue to serve and to, to other um, veterans and service members is that I, I find to be truly rewarding. You know, I like I was a part of that community. And I mean, obviously, as a veteran, I'm still a, a part of that community. But um, you know, I, I was given so many opportunities through the military and, and you know, so to have an opportunity to give back to that community means a lot to me. To finish out, you to talk about sort of your experience with VA, we like to get feedback from uh, our customers. Obviously, you, you, you said earlier that you use VA for everything. Uh, you have yeah. a disability claim with VA. You're about to use your GI Bill on law school. Let's start with the latter one of those. Um, how did, which school are you going to be attending, and how did you decide on that school? So I was accepted to the University of Houston Law Center. Um, I actually applied. I took my LSAT last October and applied in the spring, was accepted, and then I deferred a year in order to coach the Afghanistan national team. So, um, you know, I sent an email to the dean letting her know what was going on, and immediately she wrote back and was like, absolutely, <laughs> deferral granted, let me know about it next year. That sort of process, you know, I'm from Texas. Texas is my home of record, so I also get to benefit from the Hazelwood app. You know, my education obviously was paid for through the Naval Academy, and I went above and beyond my 
initial active duty requirement. So when I got out, I, I'm actually um, authorized 80% of the 9-11 GI Bill benefits. So between scholarship money from the University of Houston and my GI Bill and the Hazelwood Act, um, 100% of my law school education will be covered. I should have some Hazelwood hours left over to pass on to my son as well. So. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. And, yeah. you know, applying for those benefits, the GI Bill, how did you find that process? It was pretty easy. Um, I just did, I did it all online. Um, and I had to go to, like, two different websites to do it because you have to register with the Texas um, Veterans website as well. But I was it was really straightforward. Um, and I got my letter, my eligibility letter, probably in, like, two weeks um, to my mailbox at home. So, yeah, it was pretty easy. Uh, as we mentioned, you, you do have a disability claim uh, with mm-hmm. VA. Is that something that you went through on your own, or did you have uh, an organization as your advocate? I actually uh, I actually went through that on my own. It is really awkward being a pro soccer player and receiving disability from the VA, but that's life. Um, and I did, you know, I, I think I think everybody should should do the process um, and do the paperwork because you know you never really know. I mean, I I would feel guilty about it, but the bottom line here is that. I spent, you know, seven years, close to eight years in the Marine Corps, and, um, you know, I had health issues associated with that. So, um, you know, I, I filed claims for disability based on my medical record. And um, and so, you know, it was kind of a long process. I, I will say you have to be patient. From the time that I um, filed my initial paperwork online, um, it was to the time that I started receiving my benefits. Uh, it was about 18 months, but of course the payments were like backdated. Um, it was about a year maybe before I was I was actually assigned physicians to go in and meet with um, based on the issues that had come up in my medical record. So, I mean, it's a long process. So I think the biggest the advice that I got was basically upon TAPS. You know, as I was doing my TAPS class, they said, "Oh, you need to get this done." And, you know, they were telling me, oh, you should get it done early, and this is the form for getting it done early. And I was so busy trying to finish, like, job hunting and all of that, I didn't even worry about it. I didn't even start it until I got out. I was, I was, I think I was even already off of terminal leave by the time I started it. But so my biggest piece of advice is when you're taking tax courses or you're getting ready to transition from active duty, um, to start it early. You know, start it early because the option and the ability to do it is there. You just need to look into it and then partner with someone that can help you get that done. Because the bottom line is I wouldn't expect the VA to move that quickly on disability claims because there are a lot of claims that they have to get through and that they have to process, and some are much higher priority than others. Um, but I think, you know, as veterans and military members, if we can set ourselves up for success by starting that process as early as possible, then we should. So. Yeah, absolutely. Haley yeah. Carter, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this, telling us about your time in the Marine Corps, your life with soccer, insight on your experience with VA, and, of course, thank you for your service to our country. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's my pleasure. There are nearly 2 million women veterans who served and deserve the best care anywhere. VA is dedicated to meeting the unique needs of all women veterans. VA offers comprehensive primary care, specialty care, mental health care, and women's health specialty care, such as advanced breast and gynecological care, maternity care, and infertility treatments. At each VA medical center nationwide, a women veterans program manager is available to advise, advocate, and coordinate care for women veterans.
Women veterans who are interested in receiving care at VA should call the Women Veterans Call Center at 855-VA-WOMEN or 855-829-6636 or contact the nearest VA Medical Center and ask for the Women Veterans Program Manager. For more information about benefits and other services for women veterans, visit www.va.gov slash womenvet. You can find more information on Haley Carter on the University of Houston's website. That's uhcougars.com forward slash staff hyphen directory forward slash Haley hyphen Carter forward slash 479. You got to put 479 in there or else it doesn't work. Uh, Where she is currently an assistant coach for the soccer team. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is from our VA Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital media team honors a veteran on all of our social media platforms and with a blog on blogs.va.gov. You can nominate the veteran in your life by sending in a short write-up and about five good photos to newmedia at va.gov. Robert Kirkham joined the Marine Corps immediately after graduating high school in 1941. In January of 1942, he went to San Diego for boot camp, after which he entered Marine Corps aviation. While attending ordinate school in Oklahoma, Kirkham married a girl he grew up with in Indiana. He then went to California for gunnery training, where he made his first flights as a dive bomber. Kirkham's squadron stopped for three days at Pearl Harbor. They then continued to the South Pacific, where they fought Japanese forces at Marshall Islands. The Marine Corps base in the Marshall Islands, where Kirkham served, was large enough for only his squadron, a landing strip, and a basketball hoop. He had to create his own makeshift bed and fasten one out of driftwood and airplane inner tubes. Despite the harsh conditions and daily strikes he carried out as a dive bomber, Kirkham later stated that his experience of the war paled in comparison to the men on the ground. His squadron was originally scheduled to take part in the Japanese invasion, but after the Japanese surrendered, his squadron went to northern China to fly patrols. Kirkham and five others hitchhiked and flew various planes as a group. Their 22-day journey took them through Guam, Okinawa, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. Kirkham served in aviation for five years before being honorably discharged in 1946. After the war, Kirkham followed his father's footsteps and worked in the lumber industry, eventually founding his own business, Kirkham Hardwoods. Following his retirement in 1985, the year I was born, he lived in Sarasota, Florida for a few decades before moving to Cincinnati, Ohio to spend time with his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Kirkham said in a 2010 interview that he was grateful to the Marine Corps for the discipline instilled in him and for giving him the honor of serving. Sadly, Kirkham passed away in 2011 at the age of 87. Marine veteran Robert Kirkham. We honor his service. That's it for this rewind episode of Born the Battle. If you yourself would like to nominate a veteran as a future Born the Battle veteran of the week so you, we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle veteran of the week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. 
We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcasting app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, Pinterest, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark McKeelhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Firefight bullets fly to my brain. Simplify till we're down another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Point, click, pull the trigger to the Russian-made bullet in my bag Raining down lead Punching that clock Get them, boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner bullets fly day and night Rain, simplify Do or die, another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one